0: Amen. Let's open our Bibles now to 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 18, verses 1 through 16. That's our text. 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 16. The topic we'll find there is this. Saul's jealousy of David reveals itself and he twice tries to kill him with the spear. The title of our message, King Saul in the music room with the spear. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our study this morning. As always, we pause to ask for your help, the help of your Holy Spirit, who you promised in the New Testament would be our teacher. Only you can divide between the soul and the spirit in our hearts, Lord, to reveal to us the truth and the joy, the grace and the mercy of a relationship with Jesus Christ. We want to see him as perfectly as we're able to in these bodies of flesh, in this sin-filled world. As your word, Lord, brings him into focus. And I pray that as we look at David and Saul and Jonathan, we would know, Lord, that though this is a true story, though these men existed and lived and lived out these uh, things, Lord, that it was for our example and that it was given, Lord, for our learning, that we might apply it right now, today, where we live, where we work, where we recreate, in our homes, that our jobs, Lord, out in the world. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. The line of succession. It defines who may become or act as president of the United States upon the incapacity, death, resignation, or removal from office of a sitting president or of a president-elect. In 1981, when President Ronald Reagan was shot, Vice President George H.W. Bush was traveling in Texas. Then-Secretary of State Alexander Haig responded to a reporter's question regarding who was running the government by stating, Constitutionally, gentlemen, you have the President, the Vice President, and then the Secretary of State in that order. Not quite, Al. Constitutionally, the order is Vice President, Speaker of the House, President pro temp of the Senate, then Secretary of State. To put a face on it, the order today would be Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Robert Byrd, and Hillary Clinton. What? It's it's our Constitution. Golly. The nation of Israel was not a republic. It was a monarchy. The line of succession would have been King Saul, then his son Jonathan. God intervened by having the prophet Samuel anoint David next in line to be king. David hadn't been openly announced as the next king, but he was gaining in popularity. Saul and Jonathan had two very different reactions to David's popularity in Israel. Saul wanted to maintain his grip as king at all costs. Jonathan immediately relinquished his claim to the throne. In their reactions, we see something illustrated for us as Christians awaiting the return of jesus christ david was the anointed king but not yet reigning our lord and savior jesus christ is god's anointed king but not yet reigning thus every day we have a decision to make will we try to maintain our grip on our own lives like saul or will we relinquish claim to our own lives and submit to the future king like jonathan i'll organize my thoughts around two points number one If Jesus is your king, you'll gladly clothe yourself with humility. Number two, if you are your king, you'll madly clothe yourself with pride. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 1 through 4 at humility at Jonathan. Now, the apostle Peter wrote to us and he said, All of you be submissive to one another, be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble. That's in First Peter, it's chapter 5, verse 5. Perhaps he was thinking back on the night Jesus took off his outer garment, gird himself like a servant, and then stooped to wash the disciples' feet one by one. There Jesus demonstrated for them that they ought to clothe themselves with humility as servants of God, bow down and submit to one another in order to further the kingdom of heaven on the earth. The Old Testament has no better example of clothing yourself with humility Then that of Jonathan, the son of Saul, who was next in line to be king, but instead took off his princely attire and gave them to David, showing that he was in submission to God's plan. And so we pick up the story in verse one. We've just finished David's slaying of Goliath in chapter 17. And it says now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. David was about 20 years old. Now, here's a question for you to ponder. Just think about this. You don't have to shout out your answer. How old do you suppose Jonathan was at this time? Well, if you're like me, you've always thought of him as David's contemporary, thought of them as two young men developing a deep friendship around similar life experiences. According to the best Bible chronologies you'll find, Jonathan could have been as much as 30 years older than David. He was certainly much older. And though much has been written about their friendship, their relationship was really more like father-son, more like what we would call today a mentoring relationship. Jonathan, a much older man than the younger David. Verse 2, Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. David's life radically changed in a moment of time. As we've watched David, I've been stressing faithfulness in the little things, in the small things, in the daily things. It's because you never know when your life is going to radically, dramatically change in a moment of time. It could change for joy. It could change for sorrow. If you are faithful, you are spiritually ready for that moment. Verse three, then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, I feel obligated to reluctantly mention that there are those who twist the story of Jonathan and David trying to prove that their relationship was something other than a pure spiritual love. It's an example of looking for something, of reading something into the text in order to justify sinful behavior rather than letting the Bible speak for itself. You know, people sometimes say the Bible can be used to prove anything, and that's really not true. What happens is you come to an opinion, you hold an opinion, you have a a feeling about something, and then you scour the Bible looking for something that might somehow, maybe, kind of say something like that and then you jump on that and you say, well, here's what this says. But if you just the plain reading of the story of Jonathan and David and especially understanding their age difference, you would never come to the conclusion that it was other than a father son mentoring relationship, a good, close, strong spiritual relationship. I was thinking about this and how we might illustrate this. and, And I was thinking, what if you were to make a movie, a modern movie about the life of Jonathan and David. And so on my Facebook yesterday, just to solicit the response of different individuals, I said, hey, give me your best shot at a good, wholesome movie character who was a great mentor. And I got a lot of good responses. Some people said Atticus from uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Denzel Washington from Remember the Titans. Is that the name of the movie? I've never seen that movie. Was it Remember the Titans? Certainly not Forget the Titans, but anyway. Uh, and so there were d- different ones. Yoda came up a couple of times, but I said, you know, I just, I can't use Star Wars in church. You know, that's just the force and all that. Besides, Obi-Wan was really more the mentor, wasn't he? I mean, remember Darth Vader, he says to young Luke Skywalker, he says, Obi-Wan has taught you well. <laughs> While he was... I remember the kids, when they first saw Star Wars, they said, why does that guy keep saying Hooper all the time? Hooper! You know, anyway. And uh, so, but the, the one movie mentor relationship that kept coming up over and over again was the original Karate Kid with Mr. Miyagi and young Daniel-san, great kind of uh, wholesome example of a man. So if you were going to make a modern day movie about this relationship or identify a movie about this relationship, it would not be Brokeback Mountain. It would be The Karate Kid. And so bear that in mind. Uh, this is a wholesome, pure relationship between these Two men, one much older than the other. Now, Jonathan's actions were remarkable since he was in line to be king after Saul. He was the oldest son of King Saul and he would have been king. Instead, he gave to David the outward clothing representing his right to succession. He humbled himself to accept God's choice, clothing himself with humility in order to see God's kingdom furthered. There's no doubt Jesus Christ is coming back as king of kings and Lord of lords. But for now, he too is clothed with humility. The majority of the world doesn't acknowledge him as king, doesn't recognize him as Lord. They don't understand his mission to humble himself, even unto death on the cross, in order that men's sins can be forgiven. And so people in the world who are not Christians, they'll take a little bit from Jesus a little bit of teaching here, a little bit of example there. The love thing sounds good. You know, that's what the Beatles said too. And so Jesus and the Beatles are kind of on that same par. All, the, you know, all you need is love. But they really don't understand the total humiliation of Jesus. They're not seeing him as the God-man who came from heaven to earth, divesting himself of his, the trappings of his deity in order to serve the human race. They don't understand that humiliation or the need for it. It can therefore be tough to clothe yourself with humility and submission to the Lord that most people ignore. When you are called upon to act as Jesus acted to, for example, return blessing for cursing, it can seem as though you're being defeated in this life. You're being left behind that something, you know, is not quite right. People don't look at you when you return blessing for cursing and say, wow, I wish I could do that. What a great thing to do. They think you're weak. They, they mistake humility for weakness. And it can be hard for us. We think, well, Lord, I know how I should respond, but maybe I don't have to in this case. Maybe I can defend myself. Maybe, you know, Lord, what would you do? Maybe this person is a Pharisee. Yeah, that's it. They're a Pharisee. So I can say harsh things to them. And you know all the time the Lord is whispering to you, no, they're a sinner. They don't know any better. They need my grace. They need to see the difference that I can make. They need to see you return blessing for cursing. And it's that kind of a moment that we're talking about. Choosing humility is to look forward beyond the immediate circumstances and to trust in what has been promised to you in the future when you stand before the Lord. We live for a future reward. We may be rewarded in this life. The greatest reward is just our relationship with Jesus Christ as it grows and deepens. But regardless of that, we are living for a future reward. Every day, you and I are like the disciples in the room with Jesus. We ought to clothe ourselves with humility, get up as it were, and wash someone else's feet with the love and mercy and grace of the gospel. But it's a tough choice because no one seems to recognize what you're doing. Every day, you are either like Saul or like Jonathan. You can cling to your own kingdom or you can relinquish control of it to Jesus and further the kingdom of heaven. To encourage you, the Lord says in Matthew twenty-three, twelve: whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so as we'll see with Saul, even in this life, when we try to exalt ourselves, we end up humbled. So we might as well humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he will in due time exalt us. And when Jesus is truly king, sitting squarely on the throne of our lives, the choice is always to be clothed with humility. Saul refused humility and in his decision, we see the awful effects of trying to maintain your own rule of your life. Verses five through 16, if you are your king, you'll madly clothe yourself with pride. How can you really know if you're humbling yourself or exalting yourself? It's an important question to ask because we have the ability to deceive ourselves. And so we look at Saul, at his attitudes and his actions to see if we are thinking or doing anything like that. And if we are, we want to get away from it. And so in verse 5, so David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul sent him over the men of war and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. David had humbled himself. Now he was being exalted. It's a reminder to just let the Lord exalt you, whether it's in uh, business or out in the world or in ministry. Don't promote yourself. Let the Lord promote you in his time. Recognize, too, that when you are exalted, it's not always going to be easy. In fact, things may get tougher. They certainly did for David, but that's the way God grows you. Fourteen chapters of the Bible are dedicated to a mere 11 years in David's life as a fugitive from this point on. They formed David, they made him into the monarch that he would become, the great king of Israel, the first individual to really unite Israel and to take Jerusalem, the city of God. Now in verse 6, Now it had happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they've ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. It's, it's like those Geico commercials with the eyes, you know. You feel like somebody's watching you and you look over and the eyes, the money you're saving is watching you. Every time David, he kind of had a creepy sense and he'd look over and Saul was giving him the evil eye. Uh, and it gets, as you know, as the story goes, it, it gets very serious. Now, I can certainly understand Saul's reaction and that's not a good thing. I read that and, I th- and my immediate thought is, well, yeah, I'd be bummed too if people were doing that. And that's not good. I understand it because I still find jealousy in my heart. I still have an evil eye at times. Take a look at what was said of Saul. Saul has slain his thousands. That is really quite a compliment, quite an achievement. They didn't sing, Saul's a loser, or Saul has been removed, or who's Saul, or anything like that. It wasn't that kind of a thing. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. In other words, God seemed to be doing more with David at that point. Saul's star wasn't rising anymore, it was falling as it were. But he had done some things and they acknowledged that. It reminded me in the New Testament of the parable of the minas, Luke chapter 19. A mina was a unit of currency worth about 50 shekels and we all know what a shekel is worth. I don't, but anyway. In the story, the Lord gave each of His three servants ten minas to invest. Two of them were faithful, one was not. The first faithful servant turned his ten minas into ten more. He was rewarded with authority over ten cities. The second faithful servant turned his ten minas into five more. He was rewarded with authority over five cities. Now we see in that parable the same equipping but different results, yet both were commended and rewarded. Saul had slain his thousands. God had something more in mind for David. It didn't have to throw Saul into a jealous rage. It tells us to be faithful with what the Lord has given each of us. There's no need to grow jealous of what he might be doing in someone else's life or ministry or for that matter to be prideful about what he is doing in your life and ministry. You are to enjoy investing in the kingdom of heaven and you will be rewarded according as the Lord sees fit. No more, no less. The only problem is with those who are given and invest nothing. But uh, so you see what I'm saying? Yes, I understand in my flesh that this was maybe degrading. But if you're Saul, you have to step back and say, this is the glory of the Lord. This is the work the Lord is doing. I've slain my thousands. David, his tens of thousands. Verse 10. And it happened on the next day. The distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as other times. But there was a spear in Saul's hand, and Saul cast the spear, for he said, I'm going to pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now, we dealt with the identity of the distressing spirit in a previous study. It was a demon sent to torment Saul after the Holy Spirit had left him. Don't be confused by the words he prophesied. Those who study Hebrew point out that the words used here have more to do with actions. It wasn't that Saul brought forth a verbal prophecy from the Lord. It was that he acted maniacally in a way sometimes associated with prophets, especially false prophets. You remember perhaps the episode between Elijah and the false prophets of Baal where these prophets spent hours trying to call down fire from heaven doing all these crazy dancings and ravings and cutting themselves and doing various things. That's what this word prophesied means. It doesn't mean that they were speaking forth the word of God. It means they were acting crazy. Now, more striking here is that Saul tried to kill David. It's an outworking of what was within him, what was in his heart. We should all be glad that our thoughts don't always translate immediately into actions or each of us would be guilty of murder, I bet. Any of you who have driven on the freeway in Southern California would be guilty of murder for the thoughts that you've thought about people down there and their driving. I know, because I would too. Now, when you refuse to humble yourself, the only other option is you exalt yourself. There's no real middle ground. When you exalt yourself, you always end up destroying rather than building up others. Now, did you catch also that this happened twice? Two times he tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. If I'm David, I think once would have been enough. I would have gotten the point. <laughs> anyway, but David was clothed with humility. This was God's assignment And he was going to see it through. David had not yet been released by God to flee for his life. Now, he would be a little bit later on in his relationship with Saul. Saul's going to really come after him to kill him, to murder him. And then God begins to protect David. He sends him out. Uh, He escapes. But at this point, David, who obviously is a man of God, seeking God, talking to God and hearing from God, he isn't released. To leave, even though Saul tries to kill him. And it's, again, these things are written for our learning. They're real events that happen to real people, but they're written for our learning, and that's why sometimes they're extreme. Saul tried to kill David, but he stayed on board because that's where God wanted him. Translate that into our own lives somehow. There are times when God wants you to stay on board in a certain situation where you would normally think, hey, once is enough. I need to get out of here. This is wrong. I don't belong here. What more clue do I have to have? And and yet, have you really been released by God? Has he really opened a door or is it just really getting tough? And so David's a great example of waiting on the Lord. Verse 12, Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Saul had shipwrecked his life through disobedience. He was an empty shell of a man. In our case, as we've seen in the past, though the Holy Spirit will not depart from us because he permanently indwells us, we can nevertheless quench him and grieve him in such ways that our lives make no spiritual impact upon those around us. Or worse, we can negatively affect those around us as we walk in the energy of the flesh rather than in the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so in this book, the book of first Samuel, it pits the man of the flesh, Saul versus the man of the spirit, David, Uh, and, and both begin in the spirit. But Saul, having begun in the spirit, is trying to be made perfect in the flesh and he deteriorates and we don't want to be like him. Verse 13, therefore, Saul removed him from his presence and made him captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. Why promote David any further? Well, on a practical level, he had little choice because the people expected it. David was a great champion. He had just killed Goliath. What do you do with a guy like that? You don't put him behind a desk. You put him ahead of the army. On another level, however, this is a pretty good way to get David killed or at least to put him out in harm's way because if you led an army in those days, you were out front. You led by example. I wonder if later in his own life, after he committed adultery... David didn't recognize that putting Bathsheba's husband Uriah at the head of the hottest part of the battle wasn't similar to the strategy Saul had employed against him. And it tells me that God is always warning us as we move towards sin. We ignore the warnings. When you willfully sin against the Lord, you never just happen to end up there. Uh, You ignore the warnings. And if you're honest, you look back and you see them all. And they're they're like neon when you look back. On the way, you're ignoring them, but looking back with hindsight, it's like neon. David, we'll see the story later. I don't want to belabor it, but David is at a point in his life where he ought to still be out fighting battles, but he stays behind. He goes up onto the rooftop. He sees Bathsheba bathing. Not her problem. David shouldn't have been there. He asks who she is, sends for her. His servants... I believe in a trembling way, say, Hey, David, she is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, because they have a kind of an idea of what's going on. He ignores that warning as well, commits adultery with her, tries to cover it up because she becomes pregnant, calls Uriah back from the battlefield where he's serving faithfully, tries to get him drunk so he'll go home and sleep with his wife so they can act like the baby is his. Uriah is such a man of integrity, refuses to sleep with his wife. He doesn't want to do anything his soldiers aren't doing. And so David finally says, you know tells his commander, he says, "I want you to put Uriah at the hottest part of the battle, and when things are really getting tough, I want everybody to withdraw from him." Effectively, he says, "I want Uriah murdered." And each one of those is a warning from the Lord. And, and uh, we're always warned about our sin. The Lord is so faithful, and it's always us that just runs headlong into danger. And so David here, if he's paying attention, has these warnings kind of built in. Verse 14, And David behaved wisely in all his ways. The Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Now earlier Saul had said to himself, Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul was afraid that David would take over the kingdom. Well, he would, but that's not the point. The point is this. The kingdom was God's, not Saul's, not Jonathan's, not David's. The Lord was the rightful king. Saul's fear indicated that he did not understand the rightful place of the Lord in his life. He thought that he could lose something that God had given him, that God had provided for him to steward over for a brief period of time. This might be the most important thing I say this morning. You can't be afraid of losing something if you know that it's not yours to begin with. Perhaps Job said it best when in his suffering he declared, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What Job is saying is that in the truest spiritual sense, it's not your ministry. It's not your job. It's not your family. It's not even your life. When you became a Christian, you gave all of that over to Jesus Christ when you asked Him to save you and to forgive you your sins, to give you eternal life. Now your life, And everything about it belongs to him. He's working to perfect you, to complete the work he's begun in you. Some of you already know this. Some of you will know it one day. But Job, what he said is true. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And we're left to say, blessed be the name of the Lord or not. Depending on whether we thought that it belonged to us in the first place. Those great losses that we have suffered or might suffer in this life. Real losses, grievous losses, deaths and tragedies, those kinds of things. God wants to bring us to a place where he brought Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's not my life, not my family. I'm just stewarding over it. I'm just living for Christ. I'm just looking forward to the coming of the Lord. It's a severe lesson, but one that... The Lord is teaching each and every one of us every day. And so check to see you are dressed appropriately. Clothe yourself with humility. Humble yourself so that God may exalt you in due time. Father, we thank you for these things. They're serious, uh, but because they're from you, they're glorious. And we thank you for the witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that these things are indeed true, that our discipleship is in your hands, Lord, whether we are going to uh, slay our thousands or our tens of thousands or our hundreds of thousands, Lord, that's up to you. I pray that we would be content to do our own investing and that our reward would really be just the words from your mouth, well done, good and faithful servant. And Lord, some of us are going to dodge some bullets in life. We're not going to have it as tough as others, Lord. But each of us is going to suffer loss. Many of us have already suffered great loss loss of health, loss of loved ones, loss of careers and jobs and friends and family and other things. I pray, Lord, that we would begin to realize that uh, all of these things are from You and can be taken by You and that they, the effect that they have on our walk with You is that we would draw closer to You and recognize what a great joy our salvation is. That we would look forward, Lord, to those things above. Set our affection there. Know that one day, Lord, we'll stand before you and receive a heavenly reward that is so amazing, so perfect, so full, that you're building us a home, Lord, filled with all the things that our heart could ever desire in the truest and most blessed sense. Lord, if there's anyone here today that's not a believer in Jesus Christ, they've never understood the gospel message that you came in humility, laying aside the practice of your deity for a time, Lord, so that you could save us from sin and death and hell. I pray that they would come to you this morning in a powerful way. Bring them forward after we close, Lord, to talk to one of the guys, to ask to be saved. You do the work, Lord, by your Spirit. We trust you. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you would mature us this morning. Not that we would look forward to or desire any persecution or suffering, Lord, but as it comes, that we would know that you're blessing us. Lord, if you decide to uh, to really bless us, to give us in abundance, Lord, I pray that it would not stumble us, that we would continue to trust you, not thinking, Lord, that we earn or deserve any good thing, but that every good and gracious gift is from you, and that we would take it and use it for your glory, that we would uh, enlarge the kingdom of God with the gifts that you have given us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.